Neurocentry. As brain science and neurotechnology advance, what role should ethics play? My name is Pavel Sveboda, and I have distinct pleasure of welcoming today Dr. Arlene Sales, who is member, founding member of the Institute of Neuroethics in the United States and also director of Neuroetica in Buenos Aires. Arlene and myself met a few years ago when uh, she was one of the leaders of the ethics and uh, engagement work of the Human Brain Project. She is a distinguished uh, philosopher and uh, neuroethicist, one of the most thoughtful and knowledgeable people on the subject. And I would like to start our conversation with a broad question. What is neuroethics and what do neuroethicists do? So who are you as a neuroethicist? Well, first, thank you for having me. It, it's really a pleasure, and thank you for the kind introduction. Yes, I am. I am a philosopher who has been doing neuroethics for the last uh, fifteen or so years. And neuroethics is a field; it's a multi and interdisciplinary field that focuses on the ethical, philosophical, legal, social issues raised by neuroscience and emerging neurotechnologies. In addition to addressing practical concerns, which can range from research integrity to the ethical and legal issues raised by uh, neurology and treatment, uh, it also addresses philosophical questions. Importantly, though, uh, neuroethics has evolved into a partner field that can assist in mapping and anticipating the short and long-term ethical consequences of neuroscience research and neurotechnological innovation. So it asks systematic questions to address challenges early on uh, or before they become obstacles to, to advancing neuroscience research and neurotechnology. So the goal ultimately of, of neuroethicists is to strengthen the ethical robustness of uh, neuroscience and innovations. Right. And uh, neurotechnology is an essential part of brain uh, medicine. In fact, uh, uh, neurotechnological solutions often um, address conditions which cannot be addressed in any other way, for example, through a pharmacological intervention. So the moral case is uh, strong, but nevertheless, neurotechnologies may often involve, um, and they tend to involve interventions uh, with the neural networks. Uh, so that raises the question, um, how should they be treated from the governance point of view? Namely, should neurotechnology solutions be uh, treated like any other medical device would be? Or should there be a distinct way of addressing the challenges that neurotechnology raises? This is a great question because, in fact, one of the things that is usually raised in the context of uh, concerns raised by neurotechnological innovations has to do with the extent to which these innovations are supposed to alter human beings or alter our conception of who we are. And not a, a lot is said about what human beings are, what is the underlying, what are the underlying assumptions regarding humanness and so on. But what is important, though, is that uh, these devices, whether they uh, actually stimulate the brain to prevent, identify, mitigate disease and dysfunction, or whether they are used to restore health, they do interact directly with the brain. And this brings up specific issues. And that they must be effective and that they, they must be safe 
is uncontroversial, even though there might be some definitional issues there as to how to understand safety or how to understand effectiveness in that context. But in any case, it seems that we would all agree that, that the least, at least they should be effective and, and safe. But there are other, other concerns, which has to do with the extent to which they might impact human beings' agency or human beings' autonomy. And there are some examples in the literature that have been widely discussed. For example, uh, there are some cases of DBS uh, for Parkinson's disease users or some patients have reported perceived personality changes as a result of the device. So this raises the question of, okay, who is the agent? Is it the patient? Is it the device? Where do we draw the line between one and the other? Uh, on the other hand, interestingly enough, if we think of DBS use for depression, in that case, the goal of the device is to change that personality trait, is to change the person so that the person is not depressed. So these type of issues seem to be quite unique to this type of device. And that is the reason why I do believe that, again, it's not that these cases happen all the time, but that they do deserve attention that this means that we cannot just consider these devices as another medical device, but they do require constant checking, a constant monitoring to better guide research, to better guide their design, to better guide their development, to better guide the ethical issues they continue to raise, and to better guide governance efforts. So it is important to take into account a number of considerations. And to that extent, I would say that they, they present unique challenges. So what you are saying um, reminds me of a, of a recent event on uh, innovation in brain health that I took part in, uh, where and there was an innovator who um, very openly and honestly said that um, the questions which you just mentioned, and, uh, and there are a few others, right? The questions of identity, questions of agency, you mentioned that, um, autonomy, that these questions are only asked by neuroethicists and they are not asked by uh, the funders. So this was an innovator who already have gone through through some uh, funding rounds uh, and the investors wouldn't really raise these questions, wouldn't even ask. And also she realized that the, the regulators have not asked these questions. Um, so she was actually saying this with a lot of openness and and, and respect for neuroethics, um, but she was drawing attention to the fact that, um, yes, these questions exist, but they are not systemically part of the process yet. Well, I mean, it is true that more needs to be done when it comes to making those questions part of the process, as you said. But I would like to take issue, though, with probably the point I am reluctant to generalize. It seems to me that it might be true that there is not a lot of concern regarding identity and agency. Those appear to be very philosophical terms, right? So so, so initially one may think, who is really talking about agency and autonomy and authenticity and so on? But the bottom line, though, is that even if not all, many funders and many policymakers do mention the term ethics. And if one starts talking about ethics, and if one starts thinking that one should do ethical innovation, then automatically it seems that we have to begin thinking about autonomy, agency, and so on. Having said that, though, 
I think that the question you're raising or the question the, this innovator uh, raised is important because for me, actually, the question is not whether people mention ethics, but rather whether they take ethics seriously. And I think that that is the issue. I think that many people do talk about ethics, pays lip service in the sense that they will say that they follow codes or that ethics is important and we have to acknowledge ethical issues and we have to address ethical concerns. And yet, uh, there is a lot of ethics washing or at times ethics washing taken to be this pretend to be more ethical than one is to have a particular reputation or even at times what has been called ethics lobbying, which is say that, the, that, that one is ethically minded in order to avoid the hard regulation. So I think that the question is very important because it points to something that we still need to do, which is make people understand that ethics not only is ethics important, ethics is part of good science. Ethics is part of good innovation. We have a tendency to make a distinction between excellent science or excellent innovation and ethics. And in fact, ethics is part of the excellent science, is part of the excellent innovation. I would go further and say that I cannot even conceive of excellence in science or in innovation without thinking of the ethical aspect. And I think that that's what we should do. So the problem, though, becomes how do we do that? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's difficult because... Um, there have been a number of attempts, and right now we see a lot of activity when it, in the neurotech and AI uh, areas to try to really instill this idea that we have to focus on social impacts, we have to focus on, on ethics impacts, and so on. So we need to do more. Obviously, we need more. And what is it? I, I do believe that we need to promote a cultural shift. Uh, we need to start thinking in how to foster a culture of ethics. And that means addressing ethics and thinking of ethics, not as the ethics police, which is unfortunately many, many times the way ethics is seen, not as a potential obstacle to research, but rather as part of. And in order to do that, we need to start addressing those issues from the very beginning of a research process or in the innovation process. So I think we have to be as proactive as possible. And I don't even think that that is enough because somebody could say, yes, of course, it would be great if we start asking those questions from the very beginning. But how do we do that when we're not trained to think in these questions? So so, uh, so I do think that uh, if we really want a culture change, we need to not only start thinking about all these issues from the very beginning of the process, but also we need... Um, if you wish, some educational mechanisms. We need to train people, even in, not only in college, from the beginning, we have to instill this important idea that ultimately this is about the world we want to live in. We are not external to any of this. We're going to be impacted by it. And this should be a concern from the very beginning. And should, we should be mindful and aware and we should be trained or our capacity should be built so we are able to actually understand and be part of the process of, of making neuroscience and neurotechnology better because it's about us ultimately. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a very uh, powerful way of putting it. Um, but I want to 
come back to what you said earlier, namely that we need to be as actionable as possible also in order for, well, the uh, innovators to know exactly what they should do, right? They will be asking uh, for for that in any case. And um, the principle of consent is quite central to biomedical uh, ethics. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you um, about what it is like to give consent in the context of an application of a neurotechnological solution. Um, and, and I'm asking this because, as we know, the uh, the brain functions uh, in, uh, in a very specific way, namely the majority of the brain signals um, tend to be outside of our direct control. So um, how possibly can one or extend the notion of consent to all possible situations? Well, probably consent is not necessarily equipped to handle all the possible situations, right? So, so, so that would be my initial my initial uh, answer. But, but let's focus a little bit of, on consent because that's, as you said, this is a key a key notion that that has been applied in a number of areas, but. Ultimately, it intends to ensure that the autonomy and dignity of people are respected. So the principle of informed consent is extremely important. In the literature, though, usually a distinction is made between a sense of consent as we could call it autonomous authorization and a sense of consent as legally effective uh, authorization. And I think this is important because many times we do give consent, but we don't even know what we're consenting to, even though we may be autonomous, we're not even reading. And it, it may be said that for legal purposes, that's more than enough, but that doesn't necessarily entail this strong sense of concern that is predicated on the ability of people to actually make decisions on their behalf on the basis of information. So, Within the consent uh, uh, topic, uh, there has always been concern regarding when consent is truly informed, and that has a lot to do with whether one has all the possible information, whether one, uh, the person who is supposed to give consent is not under coercion, or at least not under significant control from others. But Neurotechnology, as you pointed out, raises a different issue because what neurotechnology can do, in fact, because it has access to, to some information that we might not be, even be aware of, it seems to go beyond, or certainly we could say, it doesn't seem to meet some of the requirement, requirements for consent. So I would say that consent in that case, is, or in some cases, is ill-equipped. Do we have to make consent process? And by the way, this is an important thing to say. Uh, consent usually is taken as a process, and, and as a process, it can be made more or less robust. So we can say, first of all, that we have to try to make the process as robust as possible. But on the other hand, as I said, there is always going to be this sense in which it is the case that we might not be able to, to give consent. And for me, that it, this means, again, that we should not think that consent is a solution for everything. And this goes back to the, to the issue we're addressing before. It's not just about whether users consent. Is consent important? Yes, it is. But they may not be able to consent to some things. And that's when, again, we have to bring back all these considerations we already discussed, which is, okay, if uh, innovators, if researchers have started thinking about the ethical impact of what they are doing, that is a way, if they start considering what are going to, to be the social implications, what, the, in this case, a neurotechnological device could affect other uh, users, if this is part of the 
design development deployment process, it seems to me that that would help the fact that indeed not always can consent be given. On the other hand, I have colleagues who say even in the best circumstances, consent is never the final word. Should never, it is, is, is not sufficient. It's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. So I think that we have to, to really recognize that in some cases it might not, certainly might not be uh, equipped to handle uh, some situations. I would like to move on now to discuss how this uh, debate on neuroethics uh, should be organized in the future, so how it should evolve. And and I'm thinking in particular of the fact that uh, so many of the issues which are relevant to neuroethics are already covered in the discussion about uh, AI governance and regulation. And the debate about AI governance is uh, sort of all over the place. We wake up and uh, and we are swamped with new uh, about um, uh, new elements in it. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, should neuroethics position itself as a separate stream of the debate or should it in uh, any significant way you know, join ranks with the uh, AI debate? Because the issues that um, are relevant you know, tend to overlap. They, they, they don't overlap 100%. And I would also appreciate your view on that. Uh, mental privacy, for example, and human identity, these are issues which are you know, more specific to neurotechnology. Uh, but the overlap exists. So should um, these debates be separate or should there be some sort of point of convergence? Yeah, I, this is a very... Uh a very heated discussion on there has been a tendency unfortunately to address issues separately so um it seems that we have a group of people who are neuroethicists and tend to focus on neuroethical issues and a group of people who are eth ethics of ai practitioners and that's what they focus on and in the last few years there have been some calls for collaboration and indeed there is a lot of reasons many reasons why this collaboration is highly desirable ai technology is increasingly imp implemented in in brain research and in the development of neurotechnologies uh, they both raise similar issues of transparency bias access stigma so there is an important overlap there they both and this is what probably gets more attention from people and they both raise issues about potentially transforming the status quo disrupting how humans relate to one another and finally underlying some of the concerns about both ai and neurotechnological interventions are certain philosophical con convictions about who human beings are the difference between humans and machines what does it mean to to, to be a human being and and what is it that we value in humans and so on so obviously the issues overlap so so those considerations support the idea that they should collaborate because the resources are there. At the governance level though, and, and again, the governance debate is long and complex and, and I wouldn't dare give a sophisticated answer, but it seems to me that considering that they both also, both AI and neurotech, share something else, which is we're extremely uncertain about their evolution. So that's another thing that we need to be mindful of. Uh, but other than that, there seems to be consensus that new governance frameworks are needed for both neurotech and AI so that risks are avoided. Uh, there is, is consensus that challenges need to be addressed very carefully. There is consensus that uh, advances in neurotech and AI should be aligned with social values. So there is, has been lately a lot of talk about human-centric AI and human-centric neurotechnology. 
So I think that if we put all this together, that appears to suggest that it would also be a good idea to treat them jointly at the governance level. That is, if we're going to be discussing governance, probably it is a good idea. And some countries, to a certain extent, as far as I know, have done that. If you think of Spain, you know, the, the Digital Rights Act has a section on neurotech. Uh, so it, it, it seems to be a reasonable thing to do. Having said that, again, so speaking of the, these missing voices and also um, of the private sector, I would like to ask you about um, the non-invasive consumer-focused uh, neurotechnology, which is growing uh, quite rapidly um, in terms of its popularity, at least. The technology is also improving fast, and it is drawing uh, attention also of governments around the world. Um, the Spanish EU presidency has been very active in this uh, field in the last few months, and this led to what was called the Leon Declaration at the end of uh, October, uh, which focuses very much on the non-invasive devices. Um, and uh, there are several points uh, which this declaration uh, mentions, but among others, um, it um, sort of appeals to governments to compel, uh, that's the language of the declaration, mm -hmm. technology innovators to be uh, aware and adhere to a human-centered and rights-oriented uh, approach. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, what do you think should be done with regards to um, to these wellness-focused products, consumer products, which are different to neurotechnology that is uh, meant for medical use? Yeah, I think that, of course, wellness devices raise, again, a number of issues. And when I say raise a number of issues, I don't want to give the impression that I don't think these technologies do not have benefits. I do believe that neurotechnologies are immensely beneficial, right? But, but it is true, we're just focusing on, on potential uh, problems or at least questions that they raise. And indeed, wellness devices raise some questions. One of the main concerns appears to be the fact that um, people may inadvertently, let's say, companies sometimes use the data they collect to train algorithms, and they do not necessarily require the consent of users. So that appears to be, I mean, that is a big concern because, again, we're talking about very sensitive data and very private data that for the longest time we thought was absolutely private and data that many people truly do not know they are provided, is being used in, in those ways. So it is true that some companies, for example, right now are asking their users to opt in or out, which, which I think is, is the right way to, to go. Probably the best thing that would happen is uh, for these companies to uh, start self-regulating you know, adhere to certain codes. So for, for example, as you said, the Leon Declaration is asking the private sector to endorse principles and to apply them. And this is what is what has happened with a number of principles in a number of documents. Basically, they are non-binding, but they are saying, you know, you have to pay attention to this. And, and what these documents bring, which is extremely important, is awareness of what the issues are. They are putting them on the table and saying to different stakeholders, you have to think about this. Now, again, there is a difference between thinking and doing something about them. So again, going back to your question, it seems that the best, probably the, the, the first step should be self-regulation. It seems that companies should, should have a leadership strong enough that they can say, we're going to adhere to these principles, have their own code of ethics, have their own guidelines that they, that they strictly 
follow. I am aware that it might be difficult for people who have no training or, or have not had the chance to think about these issues carefully. It might be difficult to even implement a system. Uh, so that's why there are some organizations now thinking in building toolkits that might facilitate this for different uh, uh, companies. So I do think that something needs to be done. I want to be optimistic regarding the wish of the private sector to really be as ethical as possible. I have had experiences and many conversations with people in the private sector, and that seems to be where they are. But I'm also aware that that is not necessarily always the case. And I'm also aware of the difficulties, even if one, want, if one wants to do this, the difficulties in really implementing in practice some of these general guidelines that documents such as the UNESCO documents, such as the OECD documents, such as the Leon Declaration are, are giving. And in that vein, I wanted to ask you as well about the uh, the various international discussions which are uh, taking place on these issues. Uh, so uh, we we had the OECD um, recommendation four years ago already. The Council of Europe has been active. UNESCO is very active in, in this field. The focus may be somewhat different depending on the organization and its mandate. So UNESCO has a, has a mandate to look after human rights. So hence their approach is more focused on the human rights respect in neurotechnology development. Uh, there is even a, a report that the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights of the United Nations is now preparing these on these matters. I mean, how do you see these these global efforts? I mean, of, on the one hand, they are super important because um, they fill a gap which exists in many other technologies. I mean, in that sense, neurotechnology is somewhat blessed by the awareness at the international level. On the other hand, uh, we, we know from experience that, that these recommendations um, are not always uh, immediately translated into um, either the law of the land or into the norms uh, respected by, by companies. So how, how do you see uh, this international dynamic at the moment evolving? I am extremely happy that so much thought is being given to, to, to these topics. And I think we also have to, to give credit a push that came with the new rights debate, right? So, so, so that to a certain extent made many people start thinking and, and many institutions and organizations start thinking about uh, uh, these issues from the perspective of rights and the extent to which new rights might be needed or if they are needed, what kind of rights and so on. I do believe that... Um, as I said, I'm very encouraged by the fact that we're having the debate and we're trying to get to a point in which we are able to use all these different documents in a productive way. I do still believe, though, that implementation is key and implementation is extremely difficult. So what we need is at this point is more attention to not what the general ideas of what we should be doing, but also how can we implement them in different domains. And I think that that's where the discussion is going. So that's why I'm so encouraged. I think that that is where the discussion is actually going towards more concrete guidance uh, that can be productively used by those who need it in the form of toolkits, in the form of more specific help. I also 
like a lot that, again, it seems to me that at present, if you look at any of those documents, you're going to see a lot of emphasis on opening up spaces for discussion. And I think that that is extremely, as I said before, that's very compatible to what I said earlier, which is this need to understand and acknowledge the value of listening to others. And I think that that is key because, because at the implementation level, again, we're talking about specific companies, specific people, specific users, and to know, to understand the views of those involved, to understand how they live these incredible innovations, what they fear about those innovations, what they hope. I think that that, that is key. And we cannot know that if we do not really engage with those who are using them. Some positive about these debates I still think that we need clarity on a number of issues. Probably we need uh, to get together uh, more and start uh, being more clear as to how we're going to define the main values that are going to underlie uh, those recommendations. I think that we probably have to be a bit more clear regarding exactly what is it that we want to protect the most uh, and why. But ultimately, again, for me, the, the big thing is concretization and implementation. And much more work needs to be done in this respect. So I want to finish our conversation by asking you a a little bit about the timeline. And what I have in mind is that in the AI debate, there is that sense that it's the technology firms which are driving developments and governance and regulation follows. Now, how confident can we be also taking into account what you emphasized, the the role of uh, cultural considerations, how confident can we be that when it comes to neurotechnology, we will have in place the main elements of that governance ahead of uh, some of the future major technological developments? Well, we can hope. (laughs) Uh, We can hope that that is going to be the case. I think, again, I see a lot of activism right now. And and as I said, I think that that is pretty encouraging to see people actively trying and organizations actively trying, governments actively trying to see how we're going to do this in in a proactive way. Uh, I think that we still have time But we have to be careful how we identify issues, how we frame them. And that is something that has to be done jointly. I'm optimistic that we will do this in such a way that we will not be blindsided, but we still might be blindsided and and the possibility is there. So it's on us to really do as much as we can to avoid that. Super. So I read it as a call to action, but one (laughs) filled with a, a sense of optimism. Thank you so much, Arlene, for joining today. A pleasure, really. Thank you.